podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Liverpool Groove. Today, I am delighted to say that I am joined by the MP for West Derby um, since 2019, Ian Byrne. Um, thank you for joining me, Ian. It's, it's an honour. Thank you. No, 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 no. It's an honour myself. Yeah, always good to speak to good people. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, so, as I say, Ian has been the MP for West Derby since 2019. Um, he's obviously also one of the men behind fan support and food banks, which is, um, you know, been massive for the city um, in the last nearly decade now. Um, and obviously, you're also one of the main people behind the the hills below, uh, and we'll touch on all of them uh, shortly. So, as I mentioned, 2019, you were elected the MP for West Derby. Did have a few issues in, in 2022. You know, your seat was in, in jeopardy through no fault of your own. Um, what what was that like for yourself? Like, you know, knowing that it was against the wishes of a lot of West Derby residents, what, what was going through, like, your head at that time? It's a good question, actually. Yeah, I think I think it was just a case of fighting, you know, for the seat because we had a lot of unfinished business. You touched on a few of the things what were involved in right to food, you know, the meal two legacy project deals with education, but also you know what we try to do for the people of you know West Ireland and beyond, and you know that sectarian element uh, which unfortunately is there uh, within the party uh, was was there, you know, and we seen it, and you know the process that we that we went through was was extremely unfair. Uh, everything around the whole whole thing was quite unedifying, to be honest, uh, because, you know, we believed that we'd done a good job. A lot of people that were, you know, speaking to us and, you know, the reflections from across the city and, and indeed the country was that we'd done a good job. And I think what was, you know, what was a little bit soul-destroying was that, you, you know, I think in 2021, we'd won MP of the year. We were the first one MP in the North West to win that. And, it's not bone smoke up your own backside. It was a total team collective effort uh, by everybody involved in the office and people around us. So, you know, when you win something like that and you look at some of the people on it, they were, you know, were extremely prominent politicians. Uh, and I thought that was a that was a that was a nice thing to bring back to West Derby, you know, to bring back to uh, to people that, you know, the work that we've done had been recognised. So when you get in that position, uh, yeah, it was it was difficult, but you know, thanks to Everybody that was, uh, you know, around us, the team that we had in place, you know, we, we, uh, we eventually overcome the situation and uh, and was reselected. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a, a travesty that you were put in that position to begin with. To be honest, and I think the work that you've done, not only you know for the residents of West Derby but the city in general, I think speaks for itself. And it, I, I, I would have been shocked if if you never got reselected. To be honest with you. When when it was all over, and obviously you you know you did win the vote to to continue representing your constituency, what was that feeling like? Was that a big relief at the time? Yeah, I was just like yeah, it was a, it's a relief, but also it was disappointment that we were in that position and we'd have to you know we'd have to waste all that energy and time if we could have been you know fighting for the people of West Derby and the city and beyond. Uh, you know, on a on, on a process which you know which was so flawed, so unfair, and. And I think it was really, yeah, it was really, it was just, it was just a thing, yeah, it was just a feeling of, you know, why, why have we been put through this, you know, and obviously we had done and we'd we come up the other side. So, case of onwards and upwards, really, and, and, and focusing on what needs to be focused on, which is, you know, the people of West Derby were struggling, so many of them were struggling so badly, like so many across the country, and, you know, trying to, throw all your energies into that instead of uh, what we had to throw our energies in for that three months. So, yeah, it was it was unedifying. It wasn't it was something which it, 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 it's done now. We've moved on. But for me, it was about me focusing all, all energies on ensuring that all the things that we were starting to put in place, like the Real Truth Legacy Project, like Hillsborough Law, working with the Hillsborough Law uh, campaign team, obviously the Right to Foods uh, campaign, which we lead on. Just making sure that they, we would be focused on them and pushing them on to even uh, greater heights to ensure that then things come to fruition. So that's obviously what we've been doing. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I mentioned there 
obviously you've been uh, running fan support and food banks now for coming up to a decade. As upsetting as it is needing food banks in this day and age, and obviously, you know, I, I assume, I imagine part of you wishes that there wasn't a need for it. But how how rewarding is it for you knowing how many people you are helping each and every year? Yeah, it's sad, you know, part of obviously what we what we did when we set the organisation up was to say shut us down and that's you know that's one of the key tenants. You know, we we wanted the organisation to shut down and when we started in 2015, uh, you know, to see it grow from a wheelie bin to you know feeding hundred thousand people last year, creating a national network across the country, uh, and then get me being elected in 2019 and being able to lead on it in Parliament. You know, it's it, it, it is quite a story. It's it, it know how far uh, we've come, but always mindful of the fact that it's a stick and plaster. Everything we do is a stick and plaster until we get that systemic change, which we desperately need, which is the change in legislation and the right to food. But, you know, we're extremely proud of the people that have been involved in it. You know, Dave, Robbie, uh, Gary Waller, everybody, uh, Paul Carr, everybody that's really come together, all the volunteers. Uh, it, it's a fantastic group of people that have come together just to push yeah, for a better society, really. But what we do is, is obviously, as I said, I reiterate the stick and plaster. Uh, and until we get that that change in law, uh, that's what we need to do. But even four weeks ago, on the select committee that I sit on, we had the report on food security, which was which is a really, really, really important and fine report, to be honest. But I think we were all... You know, quietly proud of the fact that they acknowledge that the mobile policy model that we created and use across the city uh, is one of the best ways of obviously applying a stick and plaster in a, in a manner which isn't stigmatising. You know, working with Everton Football Club, uh, due to work with Liverpool Football Club on one of them as well, uh, and all the other community groups that we work with across the city. Uh, on doing that is something that we're proud of, but we go back to the fact that you know, we shouldn't have to be doing this. This shouldn't have to be, you know, what we're seeing now is a, is a, it's a complete and utter breakdown of the welfare net that was so fantastically brought to us in 1945 by the Labour administration. And we've seen the destruction of that. And when, you, when you've got a lot of uh, hundreds of thousands of volunteers coming together to try and keep people afloat, well, then, you know, there's something uh, systemically wrong. And that's why we go back to, obviously, the... Uh, the need for that uh, systemic change, but you know, rightly so, we're proud of what's being achieved. But also, you know, you look at Manchester City boycott of the uh, Manchester City Food Bank organised a boycott of the Charity Shield uh, match because of the kickoff times and how difficult it was for them to get there, and that was hugely successful. And you know, Dave and Stephen from Fantaball Food Banks went to uh, the 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 actual game uh, and collect and, and brought donations from Liverpool. So that intercity solidarity which we created through fan support and food banks is a huge, huge part of what why we're so proud of what we've done. And obviously we, we use that to bring forward the right of food campaigns. And it's basically making people realise, working class people realise in their communities that the enemy certainly isn't somebody with a different accent or wears a different colourful pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's obviously why, how we need to focus mind, what we need to focus minds on. Yeah, I mean, you you said it perfectly. I think what I've noticed from seeing fan support and food banks on social media is that you know other other cities have adopted the approach. It's bringing bringing communities together in in communities where it's it's not always been easy to come by. I've seen you know Glasgow yeah. ones, Rangers and Celtic helping each other. It's it's a it's a bigger thing than football. What you're doing, um, and I think people need to need to realise that is you know like you say. I know when when you when Liverpool or Everton play away at say Man City or United, there's a collection going on there for them for their food bank. So it's not it's it's not a you know it's not a just us thing. It's 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 everyone. Everyone needs that help, and you're doing as much as you can to try and help as many people, not just in Liverpool but outside of Liverpool as well. So I would think it's absolutely commendable, even if we you know we both wish it wasn't something that you had to be doing. Yeah, it's basic trade union tenants as well. Obviously, me and Dave both work for the trade union as organisers, and it's that you know unity of strength, you know, solidarity, not charity message. Obviously, which is which has been hardwired throughout uh, the trade union movements. But also, if you look at the miners' dispute uh, during the eighties, the dockers' dispute in Liverpool during the nineties. You know, people collected food to ensure that then people uh, could stay 
uh, you know, fighting the injustices that they were fighting at the time and them industrial struggles. And, you know, undoubtedly some of the government policies which we've seen, you know, have led to what we're seeing now, which is an explosion in food banks, you know, an explosion in uh, in work poverty. You know, 60% of the people that actually come to our pantries across the city are in work. Now, if you're in work and you're using a food bank, you know that the system is completely broken. Uh, you know, when we're talking about people from, you know, nurses, uh, police officers, uh, we've had firefighters, you know, we've got public servants who do so much for us, uh, who are actually now having to utilise food banks to stay afloat because of the cost of living crisis and economic system that we inhabit and we live in, uh, which is completely unfair and slanted towards, obviously, the 1%. So, it's all, it, you know, it, 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 it is about creating that sense of solidarity, community, understanding, uh, and basically, and as I've said that many a time, know who your real enemy is, who you really should be fighting. And if you can harness that collective strength uh, of the working class through football, uh, but then and, and, and educate on what's actually happening on the ground uh, and look for solutions, A, the right to food, and get them behind that, get people behind that. Uh, well, that can only be better for society because what we have got to do is have to hardwire society into a, into a into a place where it's much fairer, more equitable for so many people, which it isn't. It isn't now. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think it's yeah, it's just it's it beyond belief that you know, as I say, that we have to be like this in in this society. And you mentioned people in work in full-time jobs having to use food banks and the system is just is just broken. I remember when uh my last like office job that I had, we had a food bank, a mini food bank set up in the office for people. And it's just it just blows your mind that that we're in this situation. But I think we, you know, I think a lot more people are sort of starting to to cotton on and, and change the their opinions about a lot of things. And I think you know, I think come the next general election, I think a lot of things are going to change, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's hope. Um, so, moving on to the football a little bit, to go from following Liverpool far and wide to, you know, standing in Parliament isn't exactly the normal route most people go down. Um, what what made you want to get into politics? I've been asked this loads of times and, you know, I never wanted to get into politics. It was not something which was on my radar, as I said. You know, I've been, I've been many things from a printer to a taxi driver uh, to a trade union organiser uh, during my life. So it was not something which politics with a capital P was on my radar. I've been involved in community politics all my life and fighting for a better uh, environment where we lived uh, on a local level. And then I've gone into... Uh, fan activism, uh, you know, and fighting for uh, the rights of supporters and, you know, cheaper away tickets. One of the greatest achievements uh, during that time where from the spirit of Shankly and, and, uh, and the Everton. And, and, and nationally uh, was obviously the capping of away tickets at £30, which they said couldn't be done. And it, it was done and still in place now. So, you know, that was sort of like something which you could see collectively you built them you know, you build them uh, alliances that you could actually affect change. And and uh, and then in 2017, I was asked by Dan Cardney and people at Pearl Walton who, who were standing in that seat uh, to get involved in, uh, you know, his campaign because I lived in Walton. Uh, and I first said no. Uh, you know, it was not something they wanted to do. You know, I was highly suspicious of politicians. They always have been because obviously, uh, you know, growing up, uh, in Anfield and seeing what was happening within the area and and, and it was deeply suspicious of authorities uh, like Liverpool Football Club and you know and politicians because they didn't feel as though they'd done the best for my area so uh, it was something which I said no to and then I always, I've always in the back of my mind had this thought process where where can you go and affect the most, most change for the people who you want to represent and and then, you know, I said, okay, Dan, I'll help you out uh, short term. So we went round, we got him, obviously got him elected, uh, which isn't too difficult in Liverpool, to be honest, as a Labour MP. Uh, and then from that, he asked me to become his office manager. So I say I had a fantastic job with United Union. Uh, so it, it was a couple of sleepless nights. And then again, I just thought, well, where can he affect more positive change? You know, working with Dan, 
you know, working with that the whole political movement. Then, you know, it was Corbyn was in charge. There's things that were getting said, the manifesto. Uh, every, it was still things that I really, really believed in. Uh, I thought, you know, what does an opportunity here? So, work with Dan then. Uh, till 2019 and then the MP for the Pool West Derby, Stephen Twig, announced he was stepping down uh, and a number of people got in touch and said, would you consider being the MP? And I said, no, uh, I wasn't interested uh, in becoming uh, the MP, to be brutally honest with you. And then again, you know, you're thinking, well, can you affect change? Could you do a job uh, in that role? And he didn't know if you could. You know, you, you haven't, we haven't got that in, in, in built sense of old um, Etonian confidence that you think you could actually go into them places and make a difference. Uh, but, again, you know, urged by people uh, around the movement to, uh, to stand and, and see if it was, you know, you could, you could do what we were trying to do in Liverpool and, and, and give people a voice. Uh, and I was extremely proud then to obviously get the nomination, get elected in 2019, and then go into Parliament. And, you know, it's quite a... Uh, Quite a journey, really. But as I said, it was it was something which was never ever uh, written in the stars for me. It's just it's it came about through circumstances. You do see people who, you know, from the age of probably four, think they're going to be an MP, uh, and some of them think they're going to be prime minister. And to be fair, some of them do end up thinking uh, end up that because that's the the pipeline that the country actually delivers. But you see a lot of people who are extremely ambitious with regards wanting to be MPs. And, you know, for me, my advice always to, when I speak to people is, you know, go out and have a real life. Uh, go and experience what's actually happening out in the, in, in the communities, in your workplace. And then, you know, I feel as though then you become, you can, you become you're more, more, more rounded uh, and then you can go into that role. Then. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, like I say, it's quite a... Quite a journey you've been on, and um, it goes to show. I think the the power of the people in a way, because you know, without a lot of people imploring you to do these things, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be no. where you are today. So it's it's I'm thankful for them people who've who pushed you to that place. Because as I say, some of the work you're doing is is just is really commendable. Um, so we mentioned Hillsborough Law and the Hillsborough Education. Um, I know they're both, you know, very close to your heart. Obviously, I know you were you were at Hillsborough yourself. Um, for for those who might not sort of understand it or understand the need for these things, why are they so important? Well, we started two separate projects. So we started on the Hillsborough project. So that came about from Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham, uh, and that was on the back of Theresa May. That's Bishop Jones who shared uh, the. HIP uh, obviously did a report in 2012 and the, the independent panel. So then Bishop Jones went away and was at, and wrote up basically from the experiences and what had happened during the process, you know, how we could uh, change in, uh, legislation really uh, to ensure that something like Hillsborough and the miscarriage of justice that was suffered by these families, survivors, the city, the country indeed, uh, because one of the big biggest miscarriages of justice uh, ever seen uh, and justice was never truly served, never will be now, uh, how that can hopefully never ever be uh, replicated again and no community left will ever uh, save that. So Andy then uh, produced the Hillsborough Law, which is two, which is two elements uh, to it to hopefully rebalance the scales of justice and ensure, as I said, that the cover-ups, the smears, the whole process which people went through uh, would never ever be replicated. So Steve Andy done that, uh, and then in 2017, uh, they both went in to become mayors. Uh, so they left Parliament. Uh, then I'm elected in 2019. Andy and Steve have still got that campaign, but the legislation had, had, had fell. Uh, so it was again, it was a case of getting that back uh, within the parliamentary uh, procedures, uh, what we could actually do to implement. Uh, the law which had been wrote uh, by Andy, Pete Weatherby, Elton Abbott and some, you know, good people who were involved with Hillsborough as, as, as they have come with that law. So Stephen Andy then in 2020 said to me, obviously being on the parliament now, would it be something that you'd consider taking on in 2021? Uh, so I said, obviously, that's not what feels, but that's why I'm here. 
Uh, there's the huge part of why I'm here is to obviously hopefully finish the job that they started and get the hills below within legislation. Uh, all this is happening while we're waiting for the report which I spoke about earlier to actually be implemented or to be adopted by the government. Uh, just Bishop Jones's uh, recommendations. We're still waiting on that to happen. We're hopeful that that'll happen in October. So then recommendations will be implemented. Uh, but we'll see on that. But parallel to that is obviously the Hillsborough law. How do we get that into legislation? So what we decided to do was form uh, a group, Hillsborough law now, uh, which was a huge amount of groups who've been wronged by the state. Uh, and I think that's really, really important when you think about the campaign. It's Hillsborough law now, and obviously Hillsborough is synonymous in people's minds. But when you look at, you know, Truth about saying, you know, that's what that family have gone through. Don't fight for justice, but the death of their young boy, they contaminated blood scandal. We're seeing that, we're seeing how the state lied, you know, and how that's uh, turning out. And you've got the nuclear test veterans, you know, you've got families who are still fighting uh, for truth and justice around that because of state cover ups. Uh, we've got Orgreave, you've got Hillsborough, you've got Grenfell. So there's so many elements of obviously what's happened and so many other groups uh, involved in that. The idea was to build a collective to obviously ensure that the legislators thought, well, we'll have to put this into, into practice. So the success we've had so far is the Labour Party said that they're going to adopt it uh, in its entirety, uh, which is fantastic news uh, and will be absolutely transformational uh, in rebalancing the scales of justice for communities that will face... Uh, and other hills, because the, undoubtedly there'll be other disasters moving forward. And the state has shown what they do in these sorts of disasters uh, because we've seen it uh, and we've all lived it and experienced it. So that's a hugely important moment. That campaign carries on to ensure that Bishop Jones, uh, the Bishop Jones report is implemented uh, because that is obviously what makes hills below their, their recommendations. So the fight continues in Parliament. You know, we've just had to select, we've just had a a, a joint committee between the Lords and the uh, Houses of Commons uh, on uh, justice and human rights. And hopefully we'll get a report from that in the coming weeks, highlighting why we need a, a Hillsborough law. So it's been a privilege, absolute privilege. Can't, can't. I it's one of the words, actually, that, you know, you're chairing uh, a group. We set up an all-parliamentary group as well called Public, Public Accountability, which is the Hillsborough law. So we're using every tool we can at our disposal to make sure that it goes on the front foot. And I feel as though that's a huge part of why I'm here. Obviously, it was Ellen's blood at the age of 16, you know, many family, uh, friends, and, you know, we've all had them experiences. We've all had to deal with what hills were uh, through at us. But now, to have the opportunity as a Member of Parliament, with them experiences, to actually go into these places and, and make sure that uh, voices are heard, but they'll try to affect change. Because the two... Legacies from Hillsborough now, for me, and speaking to many families and members and survivors, are Hillsborough law, which hopefully ensure that it doesn't happen again to any other families and survivors of any disaster, and also the education programme, which I'm extremely, extremely uh, proud of moving forward. And I'll touch on that now. So the, the Hillsborough law, which I've just outlined, I'd say that's one element of the legacy. Uh, and then we've got the Real Truth Legacy Project, which has been a real labour of love, really. Uh, and again, that's about putting Hillsborough on the national curriculum because Hillsborough is a national disaster. Uh, everything around Hillsborough should be taught across communities, right across the country from, obviously, the disaster itself, the, the effects, the cover-up, how the state lied. Uh, and it wasn't, it, it, you know, you can. It was, it was, it was politicians of all colours, uh, lied uh, around Hillsborough and and didn't do what was needed uh, to get to justice. So, and then obviously the fight for justice, and obviously what the family, the survivors, and everybody connected to uh, the job that they did. You know, there's a story there which should never ever be forgotten, uh, because for me, a future proof future communities shows them the way of how to fight back against uh, state cover-ups, uh, which Hillsborough was. So I think it's usually important that that's taught uh, and, and remembered on a national scale. So we've been working behind the scenes since two, uh, 2020 to obviously get us, get that get that get that that sort of like narrative to begin to uh, to be spoken. So I've been meeting in minister, uh, meetings with ministers and you know and basically what they said to us was go away. Uh, and put it together. 
uh, you know, get people to put it together. Uh, and then obviously we can look at it uh, once it's it's done in its round. So you do that on a, if you do that on a local level, and then obviously we can look for it from a national curriculum perspective. So so we did that. We took that away, uh, and then what we decided to do was obviously you had lots of fantastic educators, teachers, people who were doing it right across the country, indeed the globe. So we put a shout out and said, if you've got any lesson plans, uh, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's get everyone's uh, you know where and then try and put it together in a fashion uh, to create something which would stand the test of time. Because we've got some fantastic people going into schools, you know. I mean, inspirational uh, people who survived, families. Uh, but they won't always be here forever. You know, I was 16, I'm 51 now. Uh, so what we had to do was do something which we felt just all stood the test of time. So them stories, everything about it was not forgotten. So that was part, that was really the idea. So we put that shout out and then what we tried to do uh, from a Real Two Legacy project perspective was just put it out there and whoever wanted to get involved, uh, you know, in shaping it. Uh, and I wanted obviously families, survivors, educators, people who've done it, people who've been involved, uh, just to try and work together uh, to create something which we all felt uh, would do testaments to the families and survivors of Hillsborough, the story of Hillsborough, uh, and it was so important. So we spent eighteen months doing it, and it was it was you know it's been such a, quite a journey to be honest to get to where uh, where we've gotten. You know when we had uh, fantastic uh, people who were involved uh, around uh, the, the justice movement. You know we had survivors. Uh, we were lucky to have uh, Professor Phil Scranton, uh, his partner Dean Hayden. Uh, who we asked to you know, overlook what was happening from a you know, fact-checking perspective. You know, couldn't be there no one better, really, to do that type of things. And as I said, you know, it was it was, it was was a work in progress. It was a labour of love for a lot of people. Uh, but we got there, so we've had four trial runs of the Assembly because what we decided was if we, to begin with, if we have an Assembly, which is the gateway into Hillsborough, you know, learning 10, 9, 10, 11-year-olds, uh, and, and, and begin to see how that could work. Uh, so we had four trial runs uh, of the Assembly and we've honed the Assembly now to where it was signed off by everybody that was connected to it uh, and it was signed off by people who who mean so much uh, to the Hillsborough movement and myself personally and and it was it was done and then it was delivered by a fantastic woman called Elaine Bees. Uh, from the Liverpool Learning Partnership, who was with us at the outset, uh, when we actually got the idea, you know, and I must say, you know, former Mayor Joanne Anderson uh, and Tom Logan, uh, Councillor Tom Logan, were great as well politically in this as well. So they actually assisted us in in in, in giving us resources from the city to pull this together, uh, and then, you know, really really proud that you know in in June, uh, it was dropped to all Liverpool city schools. Uh, and all Liverpool City region uh, education chiefs uh, got it as well to disseminate within Liverpool City region. And Steve Godwin has been fantastic on this as well. He's been uh, a real, uh, a real aid and assist assistance in, in in making sure that obviously he utilised his position uh, to get into Liverpool City region. So where we are now is come September, hopefully Liverpool City region schools will be teaching. Uh, the Real Street Legacy Project, that'll go out. Another fantastic elements of it is working with Liverpool Football Club, the foundation, who said that they obviously want to play a huge part in rolling this out. So uh, they've come in as a collaboration with us and they're going to assist and work in schools as well and help them to roll, roll the assembly out. Because there's no use having this fantastic assembly and teachers are scared to actually, you know, teach it. So yeah. working with the Pool Foundation uh, and hopefully Everton as well in the community and and and, and then they'll assist rolling it out to the Premier League uh, and and and, and it, that that elements of it as well. So it's using every single tool in in, in your at your disposal. Then obviously now we've done it. I've wrote to Gillian uh, Keegan, the Education Secretary, uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, "This is the Assembly. This is what it's done. Uh, this is where we're at." And, you know, obviously want to continue working uh, while we've got this government to begin to uh, hopefully get it on the national curriculum, which has always been the aim uh, of this, templated in Liverpool City region, rolling on the national curriculum. 
So that's been uh, fantastic, and that's now obviously succeeding. Uh, you know, we've done what we wanted to do, and that's now uh, gone out. And elements of that as well as you know, obviously the Sajid Chanton, which you may touch on. So you know, working obviously being the MP, getting letters, and myself, you know, experiencing it, and you know. My dad went to Notts Forest. My dad goes home and away. He was at Hillsborough, you know, after Forest Forest game. He really couldn't go another away game last season uh, because it affected him that much. So, obviously, seeing that and you're getting lots of constituents writing in and, obviously, all the connections that we've got. So, we wrote to the Premier League in November and fair play, uh, Premier League CEO came back to me uh, and we had a meeting uh, in November and we just talked about obviously the tragedy certain elements of it, but how I believe that education was absolutely fundamental uh, to eradicating the tragedy chanting, which obviously is Hillsborough, but also Munich with Manchester United, you know, Leeds, Istanbul, Bradford, the Bradford fire disaster. Uh, you know, you've got all ranges of really offensive, horrific chants that don't support the football team, but are just targeted obviously at the supporter base. Uh, and you can include, you know, Tottenham into that, the anti-Semitism, you know, Brighton and Chelsea from a homophobic point of view. So there's lots of elements of the, that where we felt education was fundamentally so important. Uh, and obviously it's all about the real Street Legacy Project, what we were doing. Uh, and fair play should, you know, we went away. We created a tragedy working group, uh, which involved the FA, the Premier League, football clubs, uh, key stakeholders in the game and Joe Block was on that uh, from the spirit of Shankly uh, he was representing football supporters associations so they've been doing great work over the last six weeks yeah, six months and you know I've met them a couple of times I've done a presentation of the Real Truth Legacy Project just to show them how important education will be in this because for me to be nothing more important than somebody in the ground chatting about hills but, uh, and then the son or the daughter saying well hang on dad we learned about that in school or hang on mum you know, you're not right uh, what you're saying there because this happened and that happened. And I think that was a key part of what we wanted to do and how to, how to influence that. And, and I think, you know, working with survivors, families, uh, Hillsborough Group, everybody connected, uh, what we tried to do was obviously put education at the heart of, uh, of the solution. And obviously we've had uh, great success now because they're going to come forward, the Premier League, but they've come forward now with the RAF, with the FA, you know, after their different measures, potentially, obviously, the education will be at the heart of it. And then, obviously, the CPS announced yesterday that potentially there'll be charges levied against people taking part as well. But for me, we always wanted the education to be at the forefront of it because I always thought that if you start to get, you know, six, seven thousand uh, supporters uh, and, and start throwing them all out. Uh, this is my personal opinion. I thought it would have caused chaos at the game, and it would have made people more emboldened to keep doing it. Because then it would have become, it would have become really adversarial against the police, the clubs, each supporters. And I think we have to draw that poison out of it. And that's why the education element was so uh, important to me. So both of them parallel, but the education elements of it, and that's come from the Real Truth Legacy Project. That's come from that education, and obviously, you know, your fair play to Richard Masters to, to listening to us. Uh, from the Premier League, having that conversation, get sit me down for an hour, uh, listening to what we had to say, also listening to what the key stakeholders and all the Hillsborough Survivors Associations being in touch with families. So we've listened uh, and we've got to where we are now. So hopefully next season we'll see an advancement in eradicating that uh, from from the game. So, and look, you utilise the MP position because, you know, I'd have to the Richard as the uh, cab driver sitting in the stands uh, where he had the same feelings you know uh, I wouldn't have got a response because I'm the MP for Liverpool West Derby uh, I got a response and I got an hour meeting with them so it's all about utilising the position for the good of people and obviously if you want to touch on Paris that's exactly what we did with Paris as well Yeah, yeah I mean I think it's I think it's crucial that with this, with all of the, what you're doing it was important that people realise that it's Hillsborough obviously is has been the sort of forefront of it, but it's not just about Hillsborough. It's about helping people who've been affected by injustices all over the country. And this is, you know, that's essentially it. This was the starting point of it. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, you mentioned the tragedy, Chanton, and the education. I think that is vital because 
you hear it pretty much every game that we play now. And, you know, you'll get people going, oh, but that's not about Hillsborough. And say, you can't dictate to somebody who was at Hillsborough or affected by Hillsborough that that chant wasn't about Hillsborough. And that's where I think that's where the education is crucial because if they understood why it is about Hillsborough, they wouldn't be chanting what they chant. Well, well, a perfect example was uh, you know, the Hillsborough Survivors Association uh, worked with North Forest fans and brought them here. Uh, and then I'll spirit Shankly and and it was a, so so they've done a great job uh, bringing them in in light of what I spoke about when we dad went to game at Lost Forest and it was that bad and some uh, decent Forest fans recognised that and then anyway them links were made and he came here uh, and it was great to see them at the memorial with the banner and and they were really good people but what was crucial was I was speaking to uh, one of the. Uh, one of the, the lads who organised it, his son was 13, uh, and his son was saying that he was singing all these victims, and obviously the whole stadium, uh, you know, I think that, that that's what was so, uh, that's what took my dad's breath away and made it so difficult for him, because that it wasn't in isolation, it was the whole stadium. So when you hear a young lad saying it, and then I said, well, what do you think it meant? He said, well, for me, it was about, Jürgen Klopp was always moaning on the telly, about decisions, so that's what he thought the champ was about. Now, why would a thirteen-year-old lad know anything about Hillsborough if he hadn't been, you know, he hadn't it hadn't been touched on in his household, in his school, mm-hmm. uh, and that made it even more important what we're doing because that was a, a real live example of you know what uh, we're talking about here. And if for me, education is the key to the heart, the heart of what we're trying to do. You know, only on Friday we were at the communication workers union. And fantastic fella called Brian Parsons, who, who was a Hillsborough massive Liverpool fan, Brian goes home and away. Uh, and his brilliant uh, team he was working with uh, helped us shape. And Sarah Henny, I mustn't forget, uh, from my, uh, who worked with me, who, who was a massive part of it as well. Uh, shaping an adult education stroke trade union pack, uh, which will go hopefully to all the trade unions. Uh, and that's on Hillsborough, but the injustices, what we've spoken about, all the ground fell. Uh, and it's about raising the awareness, the truth, the truth around Hillsborough. So we've got six million trade unionists there. So it's utilising every single thing from the young kids from Frost Forest to, you know, some uh, old, gnarled trade unionists who might have these preconceptions because, you know, let's give people a little bit of leeway as well with regards the smear campaign that was run by the states, by the police, by the establishments, by the media, runs deep runs deep into people's psyches. It was one of the most effective campaigns that's ever, ever been mounted in the blaming of the Liverpool supporters. And then, you know, that that that's that's a, that's going to take a lot of rolling back on unpicking and from a societal point of view and a country point of view, ensuring that the truth's out there. Now, we know the truth, the truth's out there now, but it's about getting into places to ensure that it's amplified and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, so, yeah, it's a key part of what we're trying to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, moving on to the football then. So, what was what's your first memory of watching Liverpool? Uh, yeah, I'm young young kid sitting in the Annie Old End with my dad. Uh, so I lived in you brought up in Canny Farm, and we used to we had to get the twelve bus uh, and then walk to Anfield, uh, and just seeing it as like five six year olds. Six, See, just the, just just the atmosphere going in, and me half used to sit in the Annie Road ends. Everybody's mates on my sit stand, uh, and then plonking me on the metal bar, and then just seeing this green oasis and red shirts, uh, and it just overtook me life, like so many other people. Uh, it just it just become uh, one of the key focal points of my life, and I felt completely and utterly in love. Uh, with Liverpool Football Club and uh, going uh, to the match then and then when I was age 10 my dad took us from Cancel Farm to uh, Everton Road uh, and obviously I could walk the ground then so you go into uh, senior school and you know it was a different area then where you could actually pay you could, you could pay to get in you could go into the uh, you could get into the cot with your mates then uh, and then obviously it just becomes such a fundamental uh, 
pull to your life because you're going, you're going again, uh, and then you're building up them circle of friends, and then it becomes, uh, it becomes, as I said, a, a key part of your life. Yeah. What was it like following yeah. Liverpool around at the height of the powers in, in like the 80s under Paisley and stuff like that? Well, I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I used to, used to, used to go, uh, used to go around. I started going probably the away matches with my fella in the 86 season when we won the double with Zagreich. Uh, and, you know, going to the likes of Leicester, spoke me on field back about one of the great games, you know, uh, Leicester City when Everton got beat by Oxford, who was nipping stuff with Everton, and you know going to that run up uh, when we won the league, uh, and that's that sort of like 13, 14 uh, was when we were starting then, and you know you know probably uh, Brighton to be here, but you know we bunked school and we went to Carlisle. Me and my mates at thirteen, I think thirteen or fourteen, thirteen or fourteen now. Uh, if Carlisle away. <clears throat> when the FA Cup, so that was like the first time I'd gone with my mates, uh, without my dad, without without obviously that circle of friends where he had, and that was an exciting time. Uh, it was hairy going to Carlisle, <laughs> here with your mate and at thirteen and, and running around, but uh, but yeah, it was just yeah, it's like you know, you speak, I'm sure you speak to anyone, you speak to Steve Mono, you speak to all that crew, you speak to all the people that go home and away, you speak to it becomes just a just a, a part of a lot of your life experiences obviously come from the matches and you know and some of the experiences that you're actually uh, you're, you're encountered along the way. So uh, it's been a massive part, massive part of me. Yeah. If you had to narrow your memories down of following Liverpool and, and just being a Liverpool fan, if you had to narrow them down to one happy moments, what what would you choose? Well, yeah, that's a question, isn't it? Eh, <laughs> uh, uh, no. Uh, you know, the 86 Cup final was, was probably the greatest game uh, and then you go to Istanbul uh, and that was one of the greatest games uh, I've ever been. Uh, if you saw the way, it's uh, all the way games, uh, yeah, there's been some fantastic uh, moments in my life where I've, where I've, where I've watched uh, some fantastic performances from, you know, beating Roma uh, when Owen scores, uh, Cardiff. So I think we all, we all you know, I, I don't think, I don't think Istanbul can ever, ever uh, be topped, to be honest, ever, uh, just for everything about it, you know, just everything about it, because, you know, they were one of the greatest teams in Europe. Uh, one of the most formidable football teams we went uh, by no long stretch uh, the people that we had but we had some amazing footballers within that team uh, and I just think the whole thing about it you know the half time you never walk alone uh, yeah. me mate Paul Khan saying support and believe with the Fez on and that's where the banner comes from in the corporates our banner support and believe that was Paul saying in half time support and believe he's now chair of the spirit of Shankly uh, and yeah, I think I think if you'd gone to one moment, uh, I'd have to say eighty six. Even though it was my birthday, we beat Everton, you know, and it's a win the double, which was some uh, achievements uh, at the age of fourteen. But I think uh, I think it'd have to be Istanbul. Yeah, no, I mean every every time you talk about Istanbul, anytime anyone does it, just you look at that team, AC Milan. You look at our team, and still to this day, I, I sit, I find myself just thinking, how did we pull that off? Like, we had no right to. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. But, you know, it was, uh, it was sort of magical about it, which potentially will never be repeated. Uh, and as I say, being there and, and, and experiencing it was, uh, was, uh, was a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, feel. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this, this again might be a bit of a tough one for you, but uh, who's the greatest Liverpool manager you've witnessed? Uh, I'd be. You'd have to. I'd have to say. I'd have to. Well, it, it, you'd have to say. Obviously, Paisley because I was then. You know, seeing, uh, seeing what I, what we've seen and the teams, and I think you forget how good they were. You know, I was watching. Uh, we went to Charity Shields uh, when I was. I think it was eight. I think it was eighty. I was watching it the other day. It was eighty, uh, and I was eighty. My aunt took me to Wembley for the first time, and. Uh, I watched the, the game was on the highlights of the game and absolutely magnificent football. So I think I've sometimes been watching some of the older football just to realise what we actually seen. And then obviously Kenny, uh, and one of the greatest teams I've ever seen. 
87, 88. Uh, so you'd have to say Paisley. Uh, but then, you know, Rafa to win the European Cup uh, is, is some achievement. And obviously now we're living in one of the greatest areas we'll ever see. Uh, certainly in our, my lifetime, you know, under Jürgen Klopp and what he's created and the team that he, he created was probably the best I've ever seen. Uh, you know, you know that might be open to uh, debate, obviously, with some of the fantastic teams we've seen in Liverpool, like 78 team and, as I said, 87 team. Uh, but I think that, that can stand amongst them and it can be a political argument to say that the 218, 219 team, uh, that league winning team uh, was as good as... Any any team we've seen, and I think with Klopp, we've got three more years of him. Just enjoy it. Uh, yeah. He's going to be rebuilding another team now, uh, and I think what he's done since he's come in uh, is comparable with uh, was comparable with Shankly. And I didn't mention Shankly because I wasn't it wasn't my era. I was born in seventy two, so obviously I never see it. Bill, but you know, me Arthur might have a different opinion of the ones that were. Brought around, you know, Shankly obviously so fundamentally important to the club, but so was Paisley, you know. So, yeah, so, so I think uh, if you're going to ask me to pump for one, uh, I'd have to say just because of what he won and how he did it and the European success and what he built on, I'd have to say, I'd have to say Paisley. Uh, but yeah. I think we need to look at the end of Klopp's era uh, in three years' time, if it does come in three years' time, and then we reflect on what he did against the odds. Because yeah. obviously we'll find out what happens with City, uh, but we know, and even Chelsea are in the flame now, aren't we? For obviously that sort of like mm. financials open, so I think it'll be extremely interesting what happens uh, to City. But you know, City one of the greatest, if not the greatest football team, regardless of how they've been constructed, with one of the greatest football managers that's ever lived, if not the greatest. So you know, for Klopp to win the league once and then to, to be their main competitors. Uh, for four years uh, is uh, is some achievement. So let's uh, let let let's wait and see. Ask me again in three years. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean we've said it before on the podcast ourselves that it feels like we're getting our own sort of Shankly era with Klopp. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels between the two. You know, I think Klopp just just gets us. I think he just gets the city, um, oh, and oh. it's just. Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride, and like you say, we've got at least three years left with them. So let's got to just enjoy it. No, um, absolutely. Enjoy the pandemic. We were having zooms with them, uh, and he was asking about obviously what was happening with, uh, you know, within society, and you know how how he could help. And I mean, there's a man who just has got unbelievable uh, principles, and obviously that's reflected on the football pitch. He's just him and his family, just generally good people, aren't they? Regardless of what his football. Uh, you know, abilities are as a coach. So I think we're extremely blessed to have somebody that understands the psyche uh, of the city, understands the psyche of the supporters, uh, and understands how to build great football teams. He is potentially once in a lifetime manager. So, so and I, I say this to my kids, to me, two sons, to me, daughter, you just enjoy, enjoy what you're watching now, enjoy uh, the ride, and. Uh, Let's just see where he takes us because we're absolutely blessed to have a manager like him. Because you think about some of the ones that we had uh, previous, uh, and I don't want to name people, but you know, 2010 wasn't a glorious era, was it? No. Uh, before that, he took over. So, so I think let's just enjoy it. And because football works in cycles, and obviously now we're, we're in the we're in a rebuilding process, and we've got to give the man time and Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, final thing to just touch on before I let you go. Um, obviously, all the work you do in the city, fan support and food banks, the, um, you know, helping your constituents and things like that. We're obviously in a cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, there's people struggling every single day. Not everybody knows how to how to best deal with that. If you if you could offer any advice to people who are struggling and maybe not know what to do, what would you what would you say to them? I think it's about reaching out. So obviously, reach out to you know your organisations within there. As I said, you know we run six panties across the city. There's other people like us. You know, unfortunately, that's what you you got. You you you've got to be resolved sometimes. So obviously, going into your panties, food banks, uh, but also don't suffer in silence. You know, you've got debt. Uh, you know, make sure that you go to debt agencies. Basically, you know, for me, contact. 
someone like me, uh, make sure that we can signpost people uh, before they get so desperate uh, that something happens, which is which 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 is which could be heartbreaking. Uh, and you know, collectively the city comes together, and there's lots of people out there that will give you a touch, will give you a helping hand, will try and assist you out that position that you're in. So just make sure that you speak to people, uh, and as I said, get in touch with people. There's signposts there, so we can just try and get people through. But it's unprecedented what we're seeing now. It's never, it, 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 you know, in, within like within the lifetimes uh, of so many people, they haven't, we haven't seen what we've seen now. Even during the eighties, you had the welfare safety net. Now uh, you've got it's it, it's slowly, well, it's being dismantled. So it's a case of reaching out, making sure that we can do what we can to keep you afloat, and then obviously join the fight back, like a right to food. You know, you know. If you've got that energy to divert into in, into that sort of like saying that society is not fair at the moment, uh, how do we make a more equitable, more fairer society? How do, do we push both this government and potentially future governments into ensuring that the policies that they enable change lives? Uh, I was with my great friend, Professor Ian Sinner, uh, from Alderley Hospital yesterday. And we were talking about obviously the effects of poverty on ch- children and how that then goes into the lives moving forward and you know that's a huge part of why I'm in this job uh, is to fight them sort of injustices so you know people are out there who are listening who are struggling please get in touch with either your MP uh, councillors look around the networks <coughs> that you've got uh, within the city uh, reach out to them uh, and get help do not suffer in silence because that is the worst thing that can happen uh, because you don't have to, and there's people out there that help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, Ian, thank you very much for taking the time. I know, I know you're extremely busy, so um, I really do appreciate you taking the time and highlighting some of these these key issues for people. <coughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Let's uh, keep up the good work, and let's hope uh, we have a good season. The season starts well on uh, Sunday. I can't believe you haven't asked me about the central midfield. <laughs> <coughs> I, you that. know what? I, I was going to, but I thought we, we could be here for hours if we start talking about that. So, um, you'll have a three hour podcast, yeah. But uh, let's see what happens on the all right, fingers crossed. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Ian. Appreciate all it. All right, nice one, Jack. Sports Social Podcast Network.